You can't lead a community and dance if you're not showing up in the fullness of who you are. You can't provide for an entire community of widows if you're not showing up with your full self. From Crossroads Media, this is See Here Love, the podcast with Melinda Estabrooks, Season 8, Episode number 19. Welcome back to See, Hear, Love, uh, our special podcast episode. And I have a very uh, incredible woman. I'm really excited to listen to and learn from Kat Armas. She's a Cuban-American writer and podcaster from Miami, Florida. Uh, She was awarded the Frederick Buechner Award for Excellence in Writing. And she is the author of Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength. And this sits at the intersection of women, decolonialize. Oh my gosh, I can't say it. I I was practicing this cat because I was going to say decolonization, but it's decolonialism, yeah, yeah. the oh, Bible, and Cuban identity. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, decolonization, decolonialism. You know. It's... Yeah, I was like, I was I was like, what is happening here? She also explores these topics and more on her podcast, The Protagonistas, which that's awesome, which centers the voices of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color in theological spaces. Kat is currently living in Nashville with her spouse, new baby, and you're working on your second book, which is really, really exciting. So Kat, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, and I'm so excited, especially to talk about the book. But before we get started on your book, um, was reading through your bio and and see that you grew up on the outskirts of Little Havana, which my girlfriend and I just went um, to South Beach in Miami for a little girls trip. And we went to Little Havana, which is incredible. And we hung out at the Ball and Chain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> and I did a little dancing. Um, I There's so much history in that place. Uh, we enjoyed the food. It, what an incredible area, Little Havana. What was it like growing up outside of it? What was it like living in the area? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was great. It was what I... Um, I knew nothing else besides that, right? And and uh, for me growing up, because uh, Cuban culture is such a you know integral part of uh, Miami culture, of Miami in general, I mean, I grew up like that, very Cuban, you know, like Domino's. Like, I don't know if you passed by the Domino Park and, you know, but Domino's, yes. is, I have a whole chapter on my book about it because that was um, what we did every weekend, you know, Fridays and Saturdays. So three o'clock in the morning. And I obviously, I, you know, I was a child, but I mean, the, the adults, you know, stayed up later than we did playing Domino's every weekend, you know, mm-hmm. and that was, um, yeah, all I knew growing up. And so the music and the food and the, you know, it's a very mm-hmm. vibrant, uh, intense, uh, in, in both good and bad ways, right? Intense culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have, there's so much love and so much community and so much uh, culture, so much rich culture. But then you have, you know, um, you have your your deep machismo, you know, patriarchal, um, hierarchical sort of view. So, you know, you have just like every culture, you have your things. Um, but it was, it was so much fun. And it was something that um, I didn't realize 
just how different or how um, vibrant my culture was until I left Miami. And I realized, oh, it's not like this everywhere else, <laughs> right? It's not like this. And so that's really where a lot of my story stems from. It stems from growing up in Miami on the, out in the outskirts of Little Havana and, you know, then leaving and realizing, oh, wait a minute, you know, um, my culture is very unique. And I was so blessed to have, um, have had that experience. Mm-hmm. Have you been back to Cuba or have you visited Cuba? Um, so that's very complicated. Um, my family, when they left, my, my grandmother's still alive. And so obviously, you know, my book is about her. And um, I do have a, a, I talk about it in one of my chapters of how I was planning a, a mission trip to Cuba, actually. And the night that I was supposed to leave, my uh, grand, who, I mean, he sort of was like my grandfather, but my uh, grandmother's husband um, passed away. And it was somewhat unexpectedly. I mean, we knew that he was sick, um, but we weren't expecting him to, you know, pass that night. Um, and I really sort of took that as a, maybe not really a sign, but sort of like, a, mm. oh, wait a minute, you know, because my grandmother, um, she didn't know I was going um, because, you know, she was very against me going back yeah. um, just because of how so much of her family was suffering and had suffered um, th those mm. that stayed behind. And so she was, yeah, just very against me um, going back. So I didn't tell her. So she didn't know. She just thought I was going on a trip. And I mean, I don't remember exactly what she thought. Um, and that, you know, that night when my mother called me and told me, you know, Mario, which is his name, you know, Mario's dead. And so I went to the house and, you know, she was whispering to me like, you, sh you know, you should go, you should go in the morning. And then I, I was like, no, I think I need to be here, you know, with Abuela. I need to be here with my grandmother. And, and yeah, so, um, I, that, you know, that's such a, a, a weird and, um, yeah, interesting part of, of, you know, that my connection to the actual island. Yeah. You know, I love Cuba in my 20s. I've been to Cuba five times and it was it was more of it started off like a mission trip. We were going and bringing medical supplies and Bibles and I was helping out a, ch out a church in Trinidad. So I've been to Havana, Veradero, Santiago, mm -hmm. Trinidad. Uh, and so, yeah, five times I've, I've I've gone. We taught. We led worship. Um, but it's something really special for me. I mm -hmm. love the people, the food, the community, uh, yeah. to be in that church community. Cat was so beautiful mm -hmm. and I have such great memories. It was all in my twenties and I, I just learned a lot. I think about, you know, seeing people who are dealing with great hardship and great loss. Um, I think for the first time in my twenties, realizing what resilience was and mm -hmm. commitment and perseverance and love of family. Like really saw that yeah. within every, every town and community that I was a part of. And the church was really yeah. big on that. And I also, as a woman, it was, it was great. I mean, I grew up in a Baptist church where women weren't supposed to speak or teach. And when I went to right. the church in Cuba, they were like, come on, girl, <laughs> you're preaching today. <laughs> you're it. speaking. Yeah. You're going to get up and read scripture. I was like, what? Oh, my gosh. You know, like, <laughs> yes. You know, um, awesome. I had to leave Canada to go to Cuba to, to release my gifting and passions and call. But um, it was that. beautiful memories. And I, I really have. And, you know, when and, you know, bringing Bibles into Cuba when when you couldn't, we would right. gift our brothers and sisters with Bibles. But. Um, and just, I think too, as a young woman, just the importance of the scripture at that time in my life, you know, seeing that. So I have yeah. very strong, I have great love. I have mm. great love for the people of Cuba, but I also right. understood 
what your grandmother and what you're saying about your grandmother and the experiences um, understood that too, but just loved, loved the people yeah. <laughs> and the food. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we still have a lot of connections to family um, that have recently come within the last, you know, five, 10 mm. years. And um, so we feel very much connected, um, you know, specifically because the culture in Miami also is, you know, so Cuban and it is very different, you know? Um, yeah. I always say that, that, you know, when we talk about the island and when we talk about Cuba, it's, it's always so complicated um, because of the political strife, mm-hmm. um, particularly the connections with the U.S. and Cuba. Um, yes. And sort of like where I land is that empire, you know, um, empire creates vulnerabilities in other countries and then convinces mm-hmm. them that only they can save them from those vulnerabilities that they created, right? And so mm-hmm. that's sort of how I feel about the U.S. and Cuba. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of, um, because there's so much political propaganda that's sort of wrapped up in, you know, the U.S.-Cuba relations, um, you know, obviously on, on the U.S.'s end. And and really because there's a lot of racism, you know, when um, a lot of the Cubans that came in the 50s and 60s, a lot of them were white. And so the way that Cubans were treated compared to Haitians, compared to many yeah. Dominicans, was very different. And so it's just mm-hmm. very complicated, um, you know. But then there's also, as you mentioned, that other side where so many uh, folks who did migrate over here um, they did undergo a lot of trauma, you know, they did undergo a lot of hardship, you know, um, a lot of people lost their land, their businesses, their homes. Um, so there is that sort of, you know, holding this tension of, mm-hmm. you know, naming what, um, naming where there are pro- power, naming where there are privileges, naming where there's political propaganda, but then also at the same time, um, naming that there's trauma and that there's hardship and, um, yeah, none of that is easy to tease out and none of that is simple. And so I think so much of that, and particularly me as, you know, born in this country, but very, very much connected to the Cuban culture, very much connected to Cuban people here and, you know, on the island, um, I sort of sit in that tension a lot, you know, and that's a lot of what my book is about, you know, sitting in this tension of what it means to be human. Mm. Me, particularly as a Cuban American, you know, me as a, Mm. you know, progressive, politically progressive Cuban American living, you know, very much connected to a city of very, non-politically progressive Cuban Americans because of what they went through. Uh, So sitting and sort of sitting in that Mm. tension, but then also at the same time, just what it means to be human and sit in the tension of being a person in the world, you know, Um, of me being a second generation, you know, Cuban American and being, you know, feeling how we say ni de aquí ni de allá, which is neither from here nor from there. But I sort of try and wrestle Mm. with that and put it on its head. Like, what if I'm from here and from there? What if, you know, we don't have to be from one specific place, but we can, you know, yeah, we can be people, uh, border people, right? Um, So yeah, so that's a lot of of what I wrestle with and what I struggle with just as, you know, politically and, and just as, you know, someone culturally and ethnically, but also just spiritually and yeah. I so appreciate that. I think, Kat, a lot of, well, a lot of people I know are sitting in that tension. There's mm. a lot, I mean, we have a lot of second generation people here in Canada, mm. you know, wrestling yeah. with that. And I would say a bit for me, I mean, I was adopted, I'm a, I'm a Filipino adopted by a Canadian family, grew up in Asia, came to Canada, and my family struggled with that too. My my parents are white, my 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 brother and sister, their birth kids are white. Mm. They struggled because they were very much Asian, but looked Canadian. Mm. I'm looking Filipino, but brought up Canadian culturally. Mm. Mm. It's, 
there's so much, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and then throw in church culture and throw right. in all of that. And, and you were sitting in a lot of mm-hmm. tension mm-hmm. that, like you said, that we hold. Right. Um, and so I appreciate that honesty about that, because I think that is where I think for a lot of people trying to understand and, and talk about and sit in it and hold it and then make hard decisions in regards right. to n- next steps forward or, mm-hmm. you know, just how to be how in we the live world. this out yeah. and how yeah. to be in this world. That's exactly right, how to right. be in this world. It's so right. difficult. I mean, it's interesting. We're talking because, you know, I was just saying I was uh, with some friends last night and my husband and I were away up um, at a cottage up um, in Muskoka. And those are the questions we're all facing. I mean, we're all in our forties and we're like, how to be in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you be your, your true authentic self mm-hmm. knowing that people are going to, you know, not extremely cancel you, but judge you, shame right. you, do all that. But be your authentic self and be okay and strong in it. It's it's, it's hard, exhausting, and mm-hmm. I know it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really, really is. Yeah, and talking about, you know, sort of being in that tension, I think um, sort of a lot of what I, I wrestle with in, in my writing is, you know, and, and you, you know, we talked about decolonization or decolonialism, but... Mm-hmm. It's this notion that, you know, in Western ideology and in Western thought, you know, it's it's uncomfortable with this black and or it's uncomfortable with this gray, this middle, this uh, uncertain, you know, we're brought up believing that everything needs to be clear and everything needs to be black and white. And, you know, and so I think that that's also part of the tension is that and that's why I say, you know, it's not that I'm neither aquí, neither yeah. It's not that I'm not from here nor from there, that I am from both here and there. And that's where I want, although it makes the dominant culture uncomfortable, that's where I want to exist fully and be, you know, mm. as a complicated person, you know, like you mentioned, yeah, it's, it's hard to be in the world, to be authentic and to be, you know, this and to be that. And, and we're trying to be authentic, but that comes with so many complicated things, you know. Um, mm. I'm a new mom. And so even in that, just trying to navigate relationships in a new way and trying to navigate, you know, my past and my childhood and all the things that brings up. And yeah, and so... I think, um, you know, being uh, patient with ourselves and giving ourselves some grace and that we are human and we're complicated people. And, you know, even in our authenticity, we're still very complicated, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that's just something that I, I, I think I wrestle with a lot. And, and even talking about an abuelita faith, you know, um, I, I talk a lot about survival and how survival is in and of itself holy and sacred. And, you know, my grandmother, she's a woman of survival, Right. But at the same time, survival forces people to do questionable things because you're just trying to eat, to live, to exist in the world. Right. And so survival is not neat or pretty or decent even, you know, and that's what I talk a lot about in Awalita Faith. You know, so many women in the Bible do, quote unquote, indecent things because they're trying to survive, but they're called holy and blessed for it. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have, you know, women pretending to be you know, other people's in order so they can sleep with their father-in-law so they can secure their own future. Like it's not, you know, it's complicated. It's complicated. And so I think that life is that complicated, that tension that, that is life. And, you know, we've sort of Mm. been shamed to feel or believe that, you know, we can't be complicated people or, you know, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. So good cat. Honestly, (laughs) it's all like, yes, yes. And yes. I think, thank God for, well, first of all, why I wanted to chat with you is because 
what you're just saying about those often dismissed because of, and think about what women you said, the things that they've done, and you've added like race, gender, socioeconomic status, lack of education. That's me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, people say, you know, how did you get where you are, Melinda? They think I have all of this background in broadcasing, all, zero, mm-hmm. how to learn on my own, all the things that I struggled with, my prodigal years, the poor choices I made, the right. deep regrets I have, and yet here I am. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I say, grace of God, perseverance, good community, somehow a deep sense of God, even though I ignored him for many years, I, you know, I'm here, I am, and I have not been discounted or, you know, it in my life. And I think that's part of the story. Mm -hmm. I love that because I feel like more women and men need to be reminded of this, of your Abuelita faith, the theology of, because we not only do others discount you, you yourself are the biggest mm-hmm. person who discounts you. So, right. you know, discounts you. Yeah. Like I was the one who was eliminating me from the race and eliminating me from jobs and eliminating me from opportunities. Mm-hmm. Me. I was yeah. the biggest roadblock to success or freedom, you know, all of right. that. Right? right. And so what a, what an incredible message you have in this book and what you're saying um, that mm-hmm. I really want to talk about, because I think this truth needs to be like, mm-hmm scream from the rooftops to remind yeah. people right yeah, yeah. <laughs> because so much more of the world is like so easy to shame and point a finger mm-hmm. at what you're not doing and how you're a horrible mother and how you're not a great friend and you're not a great wife and you're not a great this right. this and this yeah and yeah. yeah we we can't hear that any longer and yeah. and i want you know people to hear this so let's talk about this let's unpack this a bit more you start off with you know, what if some of our greatest theologians wouldn't be considered theologians at all, which I just love that. Mm. Um, and then you talk about, you know, the voices on the margins have more to teach us about following God than we realize. Mm. Yeah. So let's talk about that. And then in that, you know, let maybe interweave a bit of your more of your story about your grandmother, your abuelita, because I'm, I'm, I'm dying to hear mm. about about her journey, too. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So. I sort of look at this idea of knowledge, right? When it comes to theology, when it comes to knowing God, when it comes to being a human in the world, right? And so I kind of mm-hmm. tackle it from from the idea of knowledge. And I ask, like, what is knowledge, right? And who gets to say, right? Who is wise? Mm. And who gets to say who is wise? Because we have this idea of what wisdom mm-hmm. is, who the, the wise one is, because we've been told that wisdom comes from uh, you know, as you mentioned, you grew up Baptist, right? So we have this image of what the wise person, you know, looks like, or we have this image of, of who we're supposed to learn from, particularly when it comes to the things of God. You know, I know for me, you know, I grew up in a in an immigrant Roman Catholic community. You know, Miami's very Catholic um, because a lot of folks who came from Cuba were very Catholic, um, you know, and, and obviously that comes from the colonizer, you know, the colonizers were mm-hmm. Catholic and all that. But, but there was this... Um, this popular Catholicism that my grandmother, um, you know, sort of held on to and, and just many in my community, not just my grandmother, but it's, it's this sort of mix of, um, Catholicism, but the kind that you practice at home because you don't have the resources to make it to mass, you know, whether you don't you know, live too far or, you know, so you kind of practice it at home and you build altars and you, you know, um, have this connection to the saints. And so that's sort of, um, 
how I was raised. And so my, my grandmother, she was sort of the beacon of, of, of spirituality and faith in my life and in, in my community. And she didn't have a theology degree. She didn't even have a high school, you know, degree. She didn't go to high school. Um, you know, she didn't lead a small group. She didn't uh, preach. She didn't do any of those things um, because she was not allowed to, right? Um, mm-hmm. But she didn't do any of those things. Um, but, you know, I I sort of wrestle with, well, what is it about her life that um, makes her a theologian, right? And, and it's not because she led small groups, it's because she, you know, taught, you know, the Bible from a pulpit. Uh, but what was it about her life um, that tells me that she was the greatest theologian that I've ever known, right? And that's where I start sort of wrestling with the idea of what an awalita mm-hmm. theology is. You know, um, in my grandmother, she made clothes for a living, and that's how she provided for our family, and that's how she provided for for those in our community, right? She she, she had a table, and it was her. I like to say that you know we always say let's invite folks to our table, but no, my grandmother had her own table, and we were her guests, and we sat at her table, and she made us food, and she fed her community. Um, you know, the, the people in her community, my grandmother, she loved to dance and that's how she, you know, expressed so mm-hmm. much of her, um, love and so much of her, you know, in, in this embodied sort of, uh, way of being how she communicated, um, so much truth and so much joy in her life. You know, there were so many things about my grandmother's life. And when I look at the women in the Bible, I, I see so many similarities of women in scripture who lived out their calling, who theologized, who um, were faithful mm-hmm. to God, not because they preached on pulpits or not because they had seminary degrees, which I have, right? I'm not saying anything against seminary degrees, but because they used their bodies and because they used the resources that they had and their devotion mm-hmm. and their love for God um, to theologize. And that's, I think that's where... Mm-hmm. You know, when we read scripture, we see that they are called righteous. They are called faithful. They are included in the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, you look at the Canaanite woman, right? Triply, quadruply marginalized. She's like begging Jesus, you know, to to help her daughter. And she's just, you know, she's, um, excuse me, uh, she's found in a space where she's not, you know, it's not her domain, right? So all these categories make her marginalized. But yet she's the one who proclaims that Jesus is the Son of God and others of his, all of when, before all of his disciples do, right? So it's mm-hmm. this that I'm talking about. It's this sort of like folks who are not um, brought down by systems of privilege and power, who, you know, who aren't, sorry, clouded by, by privilege and power, but they are surviving in the midst, you know, of being brought down by mm-hmm. systems of privilege and power. Right. I feel like they can see something, you know, something that many, including myself, right? You know, I have varying levels of privilege. I'm educated and, you know, all of these things. I was born in this country, I, in the U.S., and I am documented, right? I have privileges that um, a lot of folks that I know that raised me don't or didn't. Um, yeah, and they, there was a connection to the divine, to God, that I, I feel like many of us miss out on um, because it, their survival is rooted in their faith and their faith is rooted in survival, right? It's, so I like mm-hmm. to say that an Awalita theology is a theology rooted in survival and that survival is holy in and of itself. We don't need to spiritualize survival to make it holy. It is holy. Um, and you see that in the lives of so many women. You see that in the lives of women in the Bible, women in our society, my abuelita, right? Our, you know, the grandmothers and the mothers and the, yeah, the marginalized women in our midst. 
So, so yeah, that's a little bit of um, what I, yeah, I talked about. Yeah, Kat, I've never heard that, that to theologize by using bodies and resources. I've never heard that. Mm. That's I'm sitting on that. I'm like, wow, because culturally and within church, like theology is like, well, we study, mm. right? The mind. Uh, yeah. Then, then the ones who have degrees and the experience. Um, authority would then mm -hmm. you know share their thoughts that's what we would learn from we'd receive right. what we take and that's how we would live that's right. how it's always been yeah <laughs> but this you know i'm kind of sitting here like thinking about it you know start processing mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. that's that's that just shifted me i'd never heard that before and yeah, that I mean, makes way more sense right i, I mean, mean to me yeah <laughs> if you know theology is the study of god and so god, yeah we can study God, you know, in our everyday lived experiences. We're thinking about yeah. God. We're processing about God. We're, you know, um, but yeah, as you said, we, and that's why I start, you know, I sort of the introduction of my book is to ask this question. Well, like, what is wisdom and who is wise and who gets to say? say. And, yeah, you know, I like that's, that. I feel like that's sort of the, the crux of this. Who gets to say? And it's the folks who have gotten to say who is wise and what wisdom is. Those are the ones that we've been listening to. But mm -hmm. we're missing so much. We're missing so much about survival, about lived experience. Um, yeah. So much. And that's yes. what I argue is where we learn the most about God. You know, it's in lived experience. It's in survival. That's where God shows up again and again and again in scripture. Folks just trying to live. I mean, you look at the story of Ruth and Naomi they're just, you know, we love to spiritualize that story. And, and of course, I mean, I think, you know, it's fine to spiritualize. Mm -hmm. But they were also just trying to survive. Like, they just, you know, like, they just, their husbands died. They needed to find a way to, you know, be provided for for the rest of their lives. And so they were just trying to survive. But that survival is holy. I mean, they're considered, right? Uh, they're called, they're righteous and blessed by mm -hmm. God and the genealogy of, G like, all these things. Um, and they were just simply trying to survive. But that's where we learn so much about faith and life and the tension that we're talking about. And, you know, so. Mm -hmm. uh. So you've named them. I was going to actually kind of ask you to kind of go through, tease us a bit about some of these women who you say are unnamed and overlooked theologians in the Bible. Now, when you say unnamed, name, but you mentioned Ruth and Naomi. What other women in the Bible, because I'm fascinated, would you say are unnamed and overlooked theologians? Yeah, so... One of my favorites, um, and because I feel like it mirrors my grandmother's story so well, is Tabitha mm -hmm. um, in, in Acts. And Tabitha, also called Dorcas. And I love her story because it's short. And I feel like so many of the stories of the women in the Bible are like short, a couple sentences, short. a paragraph, yeah. right? You know, yeah. well, the Bible is written by men for men. So, you know, women are kind of yeah. like side stories. But if you tease them out, you know, you, you realize, wait a minute, you know, no, this is... Um, so... I love her story because it's short. It's a quick paragraph. You know, she dies. They call Peter to come resurrect her. You know, he, when he comes to resurrect her, all the women and all the widows in the community are standing by her bedside saying, look at the tunics she made us. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Hold on a second. <laughs> and she's called a disciple. And so this is what really stood out to me, that she's the only woman in the New Testament specifically called a disciple. In other places, we have women and men together called disciples. But mm -hmm. she's specifically called a disciple. So I, I, I mold, you know, I mold over that for a while. Why is she called a disciple? What do we know about this woman that she's a disciple? And 
all we know about her is that she made clothes. And she not only made clothes, but she made clothes Mm. for the widows in the community who, a few chapters before this in Acts, there was that whole debacle between the Greek-speaking Jews and, and, and the... You know, they were all arguing because the widows were being ignored. And so they had to appoint people to take care of the widows because the widows are the group of people that God is continuously saying, you know, protect the widows, take care of the widows, you know, look Mm -hmm. after widows because they are the most vulnerable. And here we have Tabitha dedicating her life to widows by using her hands, literally, and her, you know, her body, using her hands and her body to sew and make clothes um, for the widows in the community. She's doing the thing that God says to do, right? Like, it's simple. Take care of the widows. And that's what Tabitha mm-hmm. is doing. And I absolutely love that because it mirrors my grandmother's story. I and mean, that's what my grandmother did. She used her mm-hmm. hands to serve, to create, to co-create, um, to love, to um, to provide, right? To provide for her mm-hmm. family. I mean, she used her hands to do that through sewing. And I see that in Tabitha's story. And I absolutely love that. And I, you know, I argue that's what makes her a disciple, we don't need to know anything else other than she did the thing that she was called to do, right? Um, yeah. And that's what made her a disciple. So she's one of my favorites. And then another quick one is Rispa in First uh, Samuel. Again, her story's two sentences. And no one had ever, I mean, I was in seminary. I've, I've been to seminary. You know, I was uh, many years in seminary. And I had never heard of her story until. Yeah, this is interesting. Yeah, I'd like to hear this. I don't think I've heard of her. Yeah, I mean, not a lot of people talk about her, again, because her story is short. And it's sort of in passing, you know, Dave, um, there's an issue with David and the Gibeonites. And, um, you know, so they find out that that um, Saul had murdered some folks that he wasn't supposed to murder. And so they needed to avenge that the, that murder. So then David's like, okay, yeah, just murder his sons, which happened to be Rizpah's. Um, he, he was a concubine oh. of Saul, which happened yes, to be Rizpah's okay. sons. Yeah. So he murders Rizpah's sons. And he just, it's kind of like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, just kill them, you know. But Rispa, she, because of this unjust, you know, this injustice that happens, Rispa stays by their grave for six months because they weren't buried properly. And if you know Jewish, you know, customs, proper burial was extremely important, right? So she stays by their grave, almost, you know, creating this sort of altar, this sacred space because they weren't buried properly. So she's essentially protesting their murder, protesting the injustice that had happened to her sons for six months. She's literally, again, putting her body on the line for the sake of Mm. justice. And it's because of this that David takes notice of what's happening. And sorry, I forgot a very important part. There had been a famine for three years in Israel. So this is also, you know, there had been a famine. And that's why David, you know, wondered what, why is there a famine, God? And that's when he told them about the whole debacle between the Gibeonites and all that. And all this needs to be avenged. Anyway, so when David, it wasn't until he noticed that Rizba was protesting for those six months that he decided to right the wrongs that had happened. He, you know, he ended mm. up burying, you know, doing proper burial, you know, just realizing all that was, you know, happening. And that when he right when he righted those wrongs, that's when God sent rain. And it was because of Rizba's mm. protest. And so, you know, again, yeah, like these are completely overlooked stories, but I mean, it's literally Rizba's bodily protest ended a three-year famine in Israel. And it was because she was like, this is not right. And I will stand here and I will put my body on the line until someone notices that this is not right. And it wasn't until David the king noticed, said, hey, what's going on here? 
right? And and Incredible. mind you, he inquired of God, why is there a famine? And God said, oh, well, because of this. And he tried, you know, he thought that he was doing the right thing by, you know, killing mm-hmm. off more people. But no, <laughs> you know, there needed to be justice in order for God to send rain. And so those are two of my favorite stories. And amazing there's plenty story. more in my book. <laughs> yeah, Kat, that's an amazing story. I need to look back at that because... I think we tend to, and again, this is another side tangent, but when we read the Bible, you kind of just sort of read through the story to get to the end of the story. Right. Right? Yeah. Like, read it, done it, yeah. on we go to the next chapter. Right. And right. I think it's important to be reminded to kind of sit and sit within the story, reread it again, sit in it, <clears throat> and mm. see what's being said. I, I, I remember that, but I don't remember that part and I think I need to go back to that. that's that's amazing and I think that's you know I think that is encouraging for a lot of people who always many people I know of even myself who've disqualified themselves from any any work of and I'm not gonna say ministry or what I'm doing like as a broad Christian broadcaster or a writer but you know people disqualify themselves because they don't know right. they're you know like you've said they're not educated they're they don't have the degree Maybe they just don't can't comprehend as quickly or right. it takes them a bit longer to understand, you know, mm-hmm. but but in these stories and what you're saying, it's like our bodies, um, mm-hmm. the one thing we can do, mm-hmm. the sewing, the protest, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. present, um, God can use that. And I think that we need to be reminded of that, even for myself, sometimes I get so uptight about making sure I know everything, you know, right. before I go on air, yeah. make sure I, I, I'm well-versed and I've got it together. And I think that showing up. Exactly. Yeah. Is just the showing up. The showing up, mm. right? The showing up is, is what you can do. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me think of um, Miriam. You know, I talked about dance earlier and my grandmother, but that reminds me of Miriam in the Bible. And, you know, right after she leads uh, Israel out of the Exodus and they're, you know, they cross over the Red Sea after, you know, Pharaoh's army came to, you know, comes to try and destroy them and they end up getting destroyed in, in the Red Sea and all that. She literally takes out a t- timbrel and I like to say that she pulls out of her back pocket. We don't know where this timbrel comes from, but she pulls out a timbrel. Mind you, they're wandering. Like they just had to take essentials and go. But a timbrel for her somehow was essential. And I love how some commentators say that this is, this is her, again, wisdom, the wisdom of women, right? She pulls out a timbrel and she leads the, you know, the, the, congr- the, con- say the congregation, but she leads Israel in song and dance, right? And it's mm-hmm. that moment of just, you know, she just shows up. She just shows up and just, this is a time to, to sing and dance. We don't, we don't know what's happening. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what's, you know, we don't know anything, but we're going to stand right here. We're going to sing it. We're going to dance. And she just uh. leads everyone in dance, you know? And that's why I say again, the body, right? It's, it's that yeah, moment. Yeah. There's no degree involved. She didn't preach a sermon, but she probably did something that was way more, um, whatever the word is. I can't think of it, you know, but there was way more powerful, I guess you can say. Yeah. Was leading. I wish somebody had- people into dance and song. sorry say that again i wish somebody i was saying i wish somebody had told me that when i was younger because i love oh, to dance and sing yeah. but it was always in my church culture back then you know that wasn't right yeah, right it could lead to something worse whatever <laughs> yeah. um but i there is that and i knew that i knew that as a young girl that dancing and singing and expressing wasn't bad but mm-hmm. somehow in christian culture it 
it became bad. It became something that was associated with, you know, sexual, you know, over sexualization Mm -hmm. or sexuality. But I knew deep down because I'd seen it, you know, in the Philippines and I'd seen other Asian cultures where dance was the expression of joy and happiness and community and bringing people together and singing and and so, oh, it's good to be reminded of Miriam as well. I think that, again, the showing up, the body, yep. the the bringing of together or in that, you know, using your gifts to help and serve the widows. Like, yeah. it makes so much sense, Kat. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's almost like a simple thing, but we've lost it and right. we've added on the other parts to it right. to make it more complicated and also make it so that other people cannot be a part exactly. of theology or yeah. – power of that of power exactly yeah it's wow yeah Yeah, it's a you know maintaining of power you you know you don't want to give that up (laughs) you know those in power don't want to give up their power Uh, and as you were speaking I I also thought of you know it's the showing up and but it's showing up in your full self right like you can't you can't lead a community and dance if you're not showing up in your the fullness of who you are you know you can't provide for an entire community of widows if you're not showing up with your full self you know again I think of Abuela I think of my grandmother I think of how in everything in her cooking and her dancing and her sewing she showed up fully fully you know and it again and it was complicated right you know she had some things right like just like all all of us do she wasn't perfect but she was authentic and she was her full self and she you know she just did the thing you know and she wasn't worried about whatever you know she was again just trying to survive you know but yeah I think it's it's that showing up in in the fullness of who we are um you know we're fully present we're fully dancing we're fully using our gifts of of our hands to sew and we're you know yeah I I this is so good it's so good um I know that you mentioned because I know that we talked about um you know sort of the overlooked theologians in the bible but you also have overlooked theologians in society now I know that's one like your grandma but is there somebody that we've missed in sort of almost like mainstream society that is somebody that's made the difference but we just don't know yeah so you know one example that I love to give um and this is sort of a a perfect example of what I believe in uh, Awelita theology sort Mm -hmm. of is um so you know so we again we look to um those who, who we are told are wise or those who are, you know, the charismatic folks, the folks in the mm-hmm. front, front and center. Um, you know, we look to like the MLKs, right, who are leading entire civil rights movements. And, and of course, 100% we should, I'm not saying. But I, I one example that I give in my book is that, you know, the civil rights movement um, wouldn't have been what it was without the Montgomery bus boycott. That's sort of what launched the civil rights movement, you know, in a, in a big uh, way. And that was started by Joanne Robinson and a group of women who began sending out, they're the ones who, you know, who, who, who sort of started this whole um, boycott going, right? They passed out flyers and they were, you know, and it literally was that event and it was their faithfulness of just getting this thing going. And of course, I'm sure they wouldn't have ever known, you know, what would that would have become. And of course, you know, the, the time was right in history. I mean, everything was, was ripe for that. But I just love that, you know, this is one what I call, you know, Joanne Robinson, an abuelita theologian, just being faithful, just doing the thing. And it 
launches this cataclysmic event mm-hmm. in history, right? And of course, we know it. I mean, and again, MLK, he's the face of the civil rights movement, but it wouldn't have been what it was if it wasn't for women like Joanne Robinson and her faithful, you know, the, however many women that I don't even know mm-hmm. their names, you know, that were faithful in doing what it was that they, you know, bringing their full selves to the cause. Um, so that's yeah. one example that I love. And another one, um, I was actually just, uh, I, I host a, 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 I'm helping a friend host another podcast and he interviewed this woman, uh, Lydia Lopez, and she is one of the leaders, um, over in, on the West coast in California of, um, you know, the, the workers rights union and all of that, that, you know, with Cesar Chavez and the farmers, farm workers movement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as she's sharing her story, you know, she's sharing about how she found herself in all of these very you know, important protests in very important places. And she got arrested while she was pregnant. And it was all just because she was literally just, you know, uh, showing up. Like it wasn't, you know, she yeah. wasn't, <laughs> she was just showing up and, and she, you know, she, all these things. And my friend, you know, he asks her, um, you know, they're kind of having a conversation and she says, you know, but I wasn't a leader in the movement. You know, that was Cesar and, you know, Cesar Chavez and, and, you know, those folks like, and he's like, what do you mean you weren't a leader in the movement? Like you were being, you were getting arrested alongside <laughs> of him, right? You know, like, you know, but she was, she says, you know, I was in the background when everyone else, you know, a, a, there was like several arrests, but in one of them, she was able to escape and, a, you know, a bunch of them, they got arrested for protesting at a Catholic church, actually, in, um, during uh, Christmas mm-hmm. mass. They were protesting on behalf of the poor people. And um, she stayed behind. And when everybody, you know, they had gone off to to jail, you know, for the night. And it was Christmas Eve. And all of their children were left, you know, parentless on Christmas Eve. And so she got all the children together. And she, you know, just spent Christmas morning with them. You know, and and just hearing that. And I'm like, and you say you're not a leader in the movement? (laughs) I mean, you were the one spending Christmas with the children who, and that will forever be remembered. And because of that, you know, they will grow up and probably do something similar, you know, for the next mm-hmm. generation, you know? So if you think generationally, she was 100% was a leader, right? Um, so yeah, I think of, I think of people like her, I think of, you know, so many women, um, you know, and I name a bunch of other ones in my book, but so many women who played quote unquote background roles, you know, um, in yeah. these huge movements, but they were not background at all because, you know, I mean, you, you do a, you know, you do a show, you wouldn't be able to do the show without all the background, you know, quote unquote and people. And I have that, a lot of background right? people that support me. Yes. Right. 100%. And so, yeah. So, um, I feel like that is so such a huge part of history and just, again, the Bible, everything. Yeah. Kat, as we finish up here, and I don't want to because there's so much good conversation, for the women who are, they're still like, I'm either afraid or I don't think I can do it or I just don't, again, like what we said, they have the experience, knowledge. What do you say to those women, literally on the margins, who are like, I don't think I can, or I don't think I'm the right person. Yeah. What would you say? What would you say to them? Yeah, that's a good question. It's so hard for me to answer because, you know, of course, every situation is so different. Um, but the first thing I want to say is you already are, you know, in in a mm. sense that, you know, we already are doing the thing. You know, I think about, again, when Rispa was sitting there for six months protesting, she didn't think that anything was quote unquote happening, Right. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that that, you know, I, I, am working on my second book and I just kind of wrote about this of how, you know, we are all spiritual midwives and spiritual doulas. 
And the thing about being a spiritual midwife and a spiritual doula is that most of the time, you know, if you've been through birth or if you know someone who's been through a birth, most of the time, a lot of it is waiting. You're just like waiting for hours and hours and hours and you're just sitting there and you're just like, you know, nothing is quote unquote happening, but so much is happening, right? Like so Mm -hmm. much inside of the birthing person's body is happening. You just, Mm -hmm. we don't see it or we don't, you know, because we're not the ones particularly. So when I say that we're all spiritual midwives and we're all spiritual doulas, men, women, everybody, all of us, oftentimes we are, you know, assisting someone or someone is assisting us or we are in the birthing process. We just don't feel like something is happening. And so if we are, you know, continuously day in and day out faithful and just doing the thing and showing up and being our full true selves and and working towards healing ourselves and society and we're, you know, just doing what seems like the everyday mundane, I think that, um, yeah, that is the process of birthing. And I feel like there's something happening. We might just not see it, um, but it will happen if we're consistent and we you know, are there and we're showing support to someone. It might not be birthing in us, but we might be assisting mm-hmm. it in someone next to us or, you know, someone in our community. And then maybe it might be us next time. Or maybe it's something is happening within, yeah, like our community as a whole. Or, um, but yeah, so that's just something that comes to mind. You know, just think about how we might be, um, you know, s- assisting or spiritual midwives or doulas or, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. I really learned some new things, Kat, from you. I, I really, I, you know, I think this Abuelita theology is, is really fantastic. I, I want to use that in reference to what you're saying, you know, when I do some speaking, because I think it's just, it's, it's amazing. I think it reminds us also, for me, just the stories that I want to go back to about women and kind of sit in them and, and think about what yeah. they did, what, how they changed history I think that's that's really important. I I think, um, I think I need to sing and dance more. Yes, amen. <laughs> I did that a little bit at the. I did that a little bit at the ball and chain. <laughs> yes, some of the women amen. got me up, and I was doing a little dance, which was so fun because it was like a live band, and I was yeah. like going around and bought my husband a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, it was it was fantastic. What a great night uh, out there in Little Havana. But I just think that's really I, I'm I'm so glad and thankful that you have written, you know, about this reminder of, you know, this Abolita faith, what your book is, what women on the margins teach us about wisdom, persistence, and strength. I mean, that it's so empowering. It's so encouraging for so many who feel on the margins or, or don't feel seen, heard, and loved, which is, mm-hmm. which is really, you know, essentially, you know, our show. And so thank you. And I'm excited to read... Your next book coming up, it's The Sacred Belonging, a 40-day devotional on the liberating heart of scripture. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah, thank you. Congratulations yeah, on to... that as you're working on that. Thank you so much. Yeah, we just turned in a round of edits last night, so I'm feeling good about that. Um, but yeah, we wanted, to, <laughs> we wanted to reclaim the devotional space and, you know, just kind of nice. offer devotionals that are deep and, yeah, just um, different, hopefully. Well, I'd like to pick that up because I will be honest, no offense to all the people I've interviewed that have done devotionals. <laughs> but, <laughs> oops, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But um, I am looking for a good devotional. I yeah, it's have hard. found that I, it is. It's, there's some I'm just like, ah, it's just not 
doing it. And right. I, I'm so I'm really looking forward to this. I think something deep and thoughtful I can sit in that's interesting would be great. So I'm going to definitely, when you have that ready, let me know because I need a new devotional, cat. Yes, great. Awesome. That makes me excited. Yeah, I start my devotional by saying, I'll be honest, I haven't read a devotional in years. That's like my first line. So... <laughs> And it's like me and I get I get so many sent to us, right? From yeah. from so many different authors around the yeah. world. Again, I'm outing myself. Now everybody's gonna be like, We're never coming on to hear love. She's completely dissing us and all the books we sent her. <laughs> Every publicist now cat is like, Yeah, no. Oh, I, I might have to edit that out with my producer. <laughs> no, I hear, right. you, like, I hear you. I hear you. I have them all and I'm like, Yeah, I'll get to them and then I kinda right. like open i'm like because uh. some of it it's like i've heard this before right, right, so right. anyway i no pressure but yours better be really fantastic <laughs> oh no okay <laughs> i'm trying i'm trying okay okay amazing and i'm so thankful for your grandmother i'm i'm so grateful for the legacy that she's left i'm so grateful for the history of of your family and i'm so grateful for i i think just the courage and thoughtfulness of bringing these words to life in your new book. So thank, thank you, so you and congratulations and all the best with your new baby. Oh, thank you so very much. Yeah. That's thank exciting. You. And I know lots of late nights. Yes. And... <laughs> very exhausting. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And to you, our viewers and listeners, uh, we thank you for joining us on this really special podcast interview with Kat Armas. I hope you pick up her book again, Abuelita Faith, what women on the margins teach us about wisdom, persistence and strength and that you make sure you pick up her second book coming sacred belonging a 40-day devotional on the liberating heart of scriptural and if you are feeling like you're on the margins and that you have nothing to offer i hope our conversation inspired you and encouraged you that you have so much by bringing your body your gifts your voice your protest your sewing your making food your singing and dancing to the world and see then what god can do through showing up being present because like Kat said you already are you already are as you live and breathe and are in this world so thank you so much for joining us and know always that you are seen heard and deeply deeply loved by God thank you for listening to see here love the podcast with Melinda Estabrooks stay connected with our daily posts and stories on Instagram or Facebook at See Here Love or join our newsletter at www.seeherelove.com.